This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. All right, if you have your copy of God's Word, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We talked about Luke's main theme last week, and that is that the prophesied Messiah has come with good news so that anyone can be saved. And that theme is going to glow as we look at the calling of Levi tonight. And we're going to do an overview of, of the book of Luke briefly towards the end and see how Jesus has come to save anyone. And it's such a beautiful story. What we looked at last week was Jesus' baptism and about how John the Baptist made a way. He, he uh, prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. He was calling people to repentance. The way that the heart is prepared for Jesus to come is to be repentant and humble before God. And that is our heart having its ways made straight and that God would come in. He comes to those who are repentant and humble. And since then, I hope you guys are reading through the book of Luke on your own. Since then, uh, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit from his baptism into the desert where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Then he came back and he preached in his hometown synagogue, kind of like his hometown church. And his hometown people did not receive him. In fact, they almost murdered him. Then he goes and he's become sort of an, an itinerant preacher. He's preaching in city after city. And he calls his first three apostles. They're fishermen, Simon, James, and John. And tonight he's going to call his fourth apostle. And along with his preaching, he's began to pair preaching with healing. Right here, we're going to begin in verse 27. There was a, an incredible story that uh, was made into a, a movie a few years ago called, um, oh, sorry, just blanking out right now. Um, Ridge, Hacksaw Ridge, there we go. It was about the, the young man who was a medic and everything went wrong. His, all of his band were all shot to pieces and dying on the battlefield and under darkness and under being shot at constantly, he one at a time drugged their bodies and lowered them down the edge of a cliff to safety. And he did this for 12 hours straight, saving 75 men during that time. And the movie actually gets it right. There's an interview uh, afterwards where we find out that it was true that as he's dragging these men to safety, he's praying the whole time and he keeps praying again and again, Lord, help me get one more. Help me save just one more. And having been shot by a sniper and having had damage to his legs by a grenade, he continued all night long, dragging people to safety. As we're looking through Luke, we can see that Jesus didn't come for everyone. He didn't come for the unrepentant, those who who's looked to themselves to be their own gods. But he did come for anyone those who recognized that they were bleeding out 
He came as a medic for those who saw they were wounded and cried out for him. And Levi is one of those. Luke chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 27. After this, Jesus, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So right there at the beginning, he says, after this, the, the most recent thing that's happened was that Jesus is in this home and he's preaching and four friends carried their paralytic buddy and lowered him through the ceiling to get to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do what everyone expects. Instead of looking at him and, and healing him, or instead of looking at him and talking to him about something, he looks at this paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven. And it was a very weird thing for him to say. In fact, the, the Pharisees that were there got angry with him. They questioned among themselves and said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is this guy think he is? But they were speaking prophetically because that is exactly who he was. And so to prove that he had the power to heal the internal sickness of his heart, Jesus healed the external sickness of his paralyzed legs. And so after this, after this situation where Jesus forgives sins, we have a tax collector named Levi. Now, it's interesting to me that Levi doesn't find Jesus. Jesus, it says, went out. Jesus saw him. Jesus says to him, this is Jesus choosing Levi and calling him, saying, follow me. Now, Levi would have been a societal outcast. What the tax collectors were, were Jews from that family, from that nation that Rome recruited. Rome would recruit them and say, we want you to go and extract a certain amount of money from every family. But if you extract more than what we ask, that's what you get to keep. And you have a full force of Rome behind you. So Levi had the power to require $80 from someone, but ask for 150 and have Roman soldiers arrest them if they didn't give him what he asked for because it was in the name of Rome and then pocket the difference between one and the other. Does that make sense? And he would do this to his own people, to his own family, to his own nationals. And so all the tax collectors were hated. They were, they were thieves. They were robbers. They, they, would, they would extract money from people that, that didn't belong to them. They would have people arrested out of their greed. And so tax collectors are automatically hated. How would you feel if someone did that to you? If someone pounded on your door and demanded money from your family and demanded way more than what you knew they should? Maybe they arrested your family, your parents, your brothers and sisters. You would naturally despise them. And that is Matthew. And Jesus meets him at work in the middle of a work day and makes a command, not an offer, a command. He says to him, follow me. And his response is that he drops everything. Verse 28, and he rose and he followed Jesus. This was a promise from a rabbi. Levi, if you stick to me like glue, I'll train you into being like me. But you're going to have to give up everything. Jesus asks no less of any of his followers. Actually, just a few chapters from now in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, 
Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, these are the Levi's. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Levi lived these verses. He responded immediately in faith to Jesus. Let's look at this real quick. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. There is a great exchange that takes place when someone gives their life to Christ, when Christ calls someone out of their life. And that exchange is that Jesus, who has died as a sacrifice for them, steps into their heart and becomes king. And the one who was king in their hearts themselves steps off the throne and becomes a sacrifice to God. That is the exchange, that they would deny themselves and pick up their cross daily. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. How does someone gain the world? How, does they try to, how do they try to save up their life? Well, they fill it with everything they can that they think is going to give them meaning. Maybe it's pats on the back. Maybe it's the grade. Maybe it's dating this certain person. Maybe it's making this much money or having this car or this home or whatever it is. What is it to you? What is it in your life that if you're not careful, this becomes something that's really important to you? Maybe it's a, a certain friend circle or a GPA or, or a sports team. What are those things in your life that you try to fill your life up with? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you don't have to look there, I've got it on the screen. This is written by someone who not only had all the same desires that we do, but he also had the affluence, he had the wealth, he had the status that he could indulge his every desire. And out of wisdom, he writes about it. And in chapter two, verse one, listen to this. He says, this is Solomon speaking. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Vanity meaning, meaning mysterious, smoky, foggy, hard to grasp onto. Something that, that looks like it's there, but when you reach for it, it isn't there. Something that's empty and hollow and purposeless. This, this pursuit of pleasure was vanity. Then verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done. Now between verse one and 11, he makes a list about how he had as many concubines as he wanted, how he built homes for himself. He built vineyards for himself. He did on and on and on. You can go look at that later. And he lists out all the things he tried to do to have value, to give meaning to his life, to feel satisfied. And this is his conclusion in, in verse 11. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Maybe this is why we see so many celebrities or athletes or whatever revealing their depression, scratching for the next role, the next game, whatever it is. Maybe this is why we have so many committing suicide is that they actually can indulge every desire and they do and they find emptiness and hollowness. Now, to give you kind of a silly illustration, in my last church, 
me and a few of the staff members got together to play a practical joke on our pastor. And it, it was nothing clever. We decided we'd fill up his office with balloons. And so we did. We filled, I mean, it must have been hundreds of balloons, but balloons only take up so much space. So we also got uh, beach balls and inflatable mattresses and anything that you could fill it with air and we stuffed it in his office. Now, why was this a joke? Well, it was a joke because when his office is filled wall to wall to the ceiling with balloons, his office is useless. He can't do anything in there until it's all emptied out. But what did we fill it with? We filled his office with air. We stuffed it with air. So many times we spend our lives trying to grab onto things that we're so sure are important, so sure are going to make us happy, finally feel satisfied. If I could just have this, if I could just get to here, if I could just make it this far. And we take on more and more and more and we're filling up our lives with vanity balloons until our lives become nothing more than just a search for the next thing to fill it up with. And our lives become purposeless. It, we can't do anything in our lives because it's so packed full of what is empty, what is vain. This was the vanity that Solomon was talking about. So how does someone lose their soul? Well, they fill up their life with these kinds of balloons. Like, just, just for fun, use your imagination. I hope that you've been thinking, like, what's something in your life that you pursue that seems like if you could just get this or get here, that would finally satisfy? And we all have them. Now, imagine that as an inflated balloon, right? But let me turn this a little bit serious for a second as you envision this car now as a balloon or, you know, a little big letter A plus, GPA, and it's now it's a balloon or whatever it is trophy, etc. Now, now imagine that you stand before the Lord and you have to purchase your salvation. What do you have to offer? What? Balloons? All of these things that seem so important that we, we stuffed our lives full of, what do they matter now before the Lord? That, that is how someone loses their soul. That's how someone gains the world and loses everything. But those who are willing to let go of their lives, those who pick up their cross, that's an instrument of death. That is putting to death our desires and our plans and, and me for the sake of Christ will gain their lives. What does that mean? That means that there is a great exchange that takes place, that we say, Lord, you are now the master of my life and I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. And then the Lord fills us with himself, with his character, with the fruit of his spirit, with his purposes, with his goals, with joy and a desire for things for his kingdom and praise for his name. And then we stand before God. And what do we have to offer? We have him. We have a life of him that is laid at his feet. Nothing of us, but all of him. That is how a Christian loses their life, but saves their soul. And Levi did it. Levi, who is willing to be hated by his friends and his family to pursue money. When Jesus 
commanded him to follow him. He emptied out his heart that was jam-packed with everything else and said yes. And Levi would say yes for the rest of his life, all the way to martyrdom, 1,500 miles away from home in Ethiopia. And he never looked back. Let's keep going. Verse 29, then Levi made him, made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi was so pumped to follow Jesus that he threw a party. He threw a party because he wanted to honor Jesus. He wanted to throw a party because he wanted everyone to see his new commitment. And he threw a party because he wanted his friends to meet Jesus too. Isn't that beautiful? When someone gives their lives to Jesus, when they really encounter a living God who loves them, the kingdom is expanded, but rarely is the kingdom expanded by one. Usually, they want their friends and family to know Jesus too. Now, if someone is crooked and hated, who do they spend their time with? They, they spend their time with other people that are crooked and hated, right? And so whenever he gets together his compatriots, when he gets together his friends, it's a whole houseful of sinners and hated people and crooked people. And this is, this is what Jesus has stepped into. Right here, Levi is being a light. He's invited people to meet Jesus. He's invited people to see that he has a new master in his life. He's being a light. And if I accidentally say Matthew, Matthew and Levi are the same person, just so that's not confusing. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus used the symbolism of light. Why? It means several things. It means one, it's an acknowledgement that our world's dark. And two, that Jesus has made us stand out in it. He's made us different. He's made us a little weird. That we have, that we serve Jesus. We look different. We talk different. We should. He's made us light in the world. But it's not a light for ourselves. It's a light. What does it say? That, that people would look at us, they'd see our good works, and they would give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Levi found a profound joy in Jesus. And he wanted everyone to encounter Jesus like that. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time. If I'm in a place that's not already sort of socially acceptable to be a Christian, do you feel like that too? Like maybe it's easy to, to walk an aisle or be baptized or, or sing or show up someplace that it's already a safe atmosphere for Christians. But what about at school? I don't know about you, but 
Even when it, during the years I attended a Christian school, I still felt awkward acting like Jesus at a Christian school. So how much more public school? How much more work? It's hard sometimes. Levi didn't have that problem. He didn't have that hang up. Maybe we need to, to go back to the great exchange that our lives are no longer our own. We're bought with a price. And we're to be a light or be salt so that people would see us and say, there's something different about her. There's something different about him. If people don't see that we're different, then I'm not really sure if we're fitting what Jesus is calling us to be. I can tell you we're not. You're a light. It would be foolish for someone to light something when they need to see and then cover it with a basket. It would be foolish for them to waste oil in a wick when they need to see and cover it with a basket. How foolish is it that we know Christ and that we're afraid to be recognized for who we are? But meanwhile, in this room, in this uh, crazy collection of sinners, you have some people that stick out like sore thumbs, the scribes and the Pharisees, the holier-than-thous, the people that are really sure that all of them are going to hell, and they are really sure that they have got this figured out. And what do they say? They get all bent out of shape. They start grumbling, and they say, why do you eat? They're talking to the disciples because they're afraid to talk to Jesus, apparently. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And it's almost like Jesus overhears them. Now, I do want to say that in their culture, eating with someone was a, a personal thing. To eat together with a group of people meant that there was unity. There was a common mind. There was common acceptance. You chose wisely who you ate with and who you didn't eat with. So that, uh, Jews would rarely eat with Gentiles, and they would certainly not eat with blatant sinners. And so they would get bent out of shape with this. Jesus, why are you hanging out with them? Why are you eating with them? Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not fraternizing. He's not being one of the boys. He's not trying to blend in. Jesus isn't trying to be a, a loving Trojan horse so that they'll accept him today and think he's really cool, and then maybe he'll speak truth later. No, Jesus is there to call disciples. He's there to call sinners to repentance. That's what he says himself. I've not come to call righteous, but I've called him to call sinners to repentance. The Pharisees' disapproval of Jesus is perfect because it sets up our contrast. It sets up the backdrop for exactly what Luke wants to do. He wants to show that Jesus came for anyone. And so they complain, why are you eating with them? And they create this us and them category. And between us and between them, there's this big wall. And on that side of the wall is the unrighteous and the sinners. And on this side of the wall is the people that have it together, the people that are good with God and we're chilling with our righteous selves. And Jesus comes into this and he messes it up and he tears down the wall. But what's interesting is he doesn't tear down the wall so he can holler over, hey, your side is good too. Everyone has an equally valid opinion. No, he tears down the wall because he's going to save sinners he tears down the wall so he can be the medic that pulls people to salvation, to safety. That's why he tears down the wall. And then 
what Jesus does next is he actually lays out a line communicating that the Pharisees might not be on the side that they think they're on. Look at this. Who does this, the Messiah come to? He comes to the repentant and he comes to the humble. If only the Pharisees had had the humility to realize that they had put themselves in the wrong camp. Because the Messiah is going to pass right by the self-righteous and he's going to go to the sick. They failed to realize that they themselves are hemorrhaging. That they're filled with cancer and they're patting themselves on the back. But they're not righteous. No one is. Romans chapter 3 lays this out perfectly. Verses 9 through 12, we have it on the screen. Paul writes, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Jumping down to verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all bleeding out on the battlefield apart from Christ. And what's crazy, elevate, listen good. What's crazy is that bleeding out on the battlefield, we're not even on the same side as the medic. We're actually on the enemy's side. And yet he steps onto the battlefield and he comes to drag rebels to salvation. How beautiful is that? We stood against God and he reached in and replaced a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. These Pharisees are so certain that they've got it figured out. And yet, they're blinded by their own self-righteousness to say, I need a Savior too. Jesus tells a story also in Luke, in Luke chapter 15. Most of us know it as the prodigal son. I'll just give you a quick overview. It's a story about, ultimately about a father. And he has two sons. And one of his sons, in a very rebellious nature, comes and demands the inheritance that he would receive when the father dies. So he's communicating, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're dead to me. Give me the money that you owe me. And so the father does. The father consents, and he splits the inheritance between the one son and another. And the one son who demanded the inheritance goes off, and he lives a sinful life, and he wastes his money and the other son stays home. Now, the son that went off to waste his money ends up poor and broke and hungry, so much so that he remembers his father. And he remembers that even the servants in his father's house are well-fed. So he comes home, and in a beautiful scene, the father says that he sees his son from a long distance away, and he runs. The father runs to his son. And before the son can even confess, before he can apologize, before he can give the father his prepared speech, the father wraps a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger, and restores him to sonship. 
But we shouldn't end the story there because there's still one more son. This younger son has come home and he's being celebrated. And another son remains in the field and doesn't want to come in to celebrate his brother's homecoming. So the father, just like he went out to the son who is the rebel, the father also goes out. I told you this is a story about the father. The father also goes out to the son that refused to come in to celebrate his brother. And this son who wouldn't come in says to him, how, how could you do this? How could you take the son who has lived a sinful life and bless him? While I've been staying at home and I've been doing all the right things and I've been serving you in all the right ways, but you never blessed me, you never celebrated me. And Jesus' parable ends on a cliffhanger because he's speaking to two different kinds of people. He's speaking to people that recognize their sinners that, and he calls them back to the Father. But he's also teaching this parable to people that have forgotten their sinners because they're pretty sure they've got it figured out. They're pretty sure that they've been doing all the right things and they've been serving in all the right ways. And so this story of the lost son, the prodigal son, is really about two lost sons. And Jesus is having the same conversation here, but in a different way. And he's saying, look, the doctor comes for those who are sick to heal them and to save them from hell, from, for heaven. And guys, you're not on the list. You're not jumping on board. I'm here. I'm a physician for sinners and sick. And you're not getting with the program. You're so busy convinced that you're sitting on the righteous side that you don't realize the darkness you sit in. Jesus doesn't come to those who self-diagnose as doing fine or a good person or better than someone else. He comes for those who are humble and repentant. But Levi saw himself and he recognized his need for Jesus. He responded right away in faith. And Jesus came to him. Jesus came to him with the antiseptic of forgiveness. And he came to him with the bandages of mercy. And he came to him with the medicine of grace. And he saved Levi. And he sits in the middle of Levi's friends with this call. And he sits in the middle of Pharisees and scribes with the same call. Because Jesus comes for anyone. And real quick, just for a few minutes, I want to, if you have your Bibles, I want to flip through together. Look at this. This is so beautiful. Jesus, in chapter 4, verse 31 through 37, Jesus comes for those who are opposed to God. This is where Jesus comes to a demon-possessed man. You don't get any more opposed to God than filled with demons. And Jesus crosses to him and heals him. And then in chapter five, Jesus comes to the outcast, the one society won't get close to, the leper. In chapter five, verse 12, Jesus comes to him and puts his hands on him. Jesus comes to the outcast. And then just like I talked about the paralytic, also in chapter five, Jesus comes to the sick and just like for Levi, Jesus comes to the hated. In chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, Jesus comes 
for the centurion servant, those who aren't even Jews. Thank goodness he comes to non-Jews, because that's me too. In chapter 7, John the Baptist sends messengers to ask Jesus if he's really the one. The John the Baptist, the messenger preparing the way, questions. Isn't it good to know that Jesus comes for those who are questioning too? Those who are skeptical? Thank God Jesus comes to those who are questioning. In the same chapter, chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus comes for the sinful woman. He comes for those who everyone avoids. Oh, thank you, Lord. He comes for the people that are avoided. In chapter 18, he comes for those who have nothing to offer, the children. 18, verses 15 through 17. Kids have nothing to offer. And Jesus paused everything to love them. Jesus comes also in chapter 18. He comes for the annoying. Remember the blind guy who's yelling out and the disciples say, shut up, shut up. The master's trying to preach. Jesus even comes for the people that are annoying. If you don't know anyone who's annoying, it's probably because it's you. Thank goodness Jesus came for you too. In chapter 19, Jesus came for the rich, Zacchaeus. Throughout the book, in chapters 4, 7, and 18, Jesus comes for the poor. In chapter 8, wow, these are out of order. Jesus comes for the dirty, the woman with the issue of blood that should never have been among the crowd because she was unclean. And Jesus loved her. And my favorite, chapter 23, it's almost as if Jesus prayed, Father, Help me get one more. And Jesus, hanging on a cross, Jesus reaches out to someone who seems too far gone, a thief in the midst of his execution. And in that moment, Jesus tells him he's going to be in paradise today. Father, help me get one more. And Jesus wouldn't die without getting one more for the kingdom. I don't know maybe where you find yourself. Maybe you have been or are opposed to God. Or maybe you feel like the outcast or the sick, the hated, the questioning, the avoided. Maybe you feel like you have nothing to offer. Maybe you feel like you're treated like you're the person who's annoying. Maybe you're rich or poor or dirty. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone. Jesus came for you. But there's another side to this. This gives us hope to never stop praying for the people that we love, the people that are opposed, the people that are questioning, the people that are dirty, the people that are hated. But let's not stop there. This also teaches us that Christians love who Jesus loved. And this needs to challenge us right now tonight. Who in your life is annoying that you avoid? Jesus loves them, and he's calling you to love them too. Who in your life do you avoid? Who, who, who in your life is hated or the outcast? Who in your life is ostracized for one reason or another? They need to encounter light 
so they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I'll give you this closing challenge. How do you spell love? I got this from Miko Carlos. He spelled it L-O-T-I-M-E. One of the, the first most memorable ways that you can love the way Jesus loves is to give time. Just like those children who pulled up on his lap. Just like the blind guy that Jesus stopped everything for. Give your time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for men and women of God. Thank you that you saved us. And Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you as their Savior yet, call them, Lord. And I pray that they would be willing to give their lives to you, to talk to a leader, to talk to a pastor, to ask questions. Move them, Lord, towards your heart. And Lord, I pray that we would love the way you loved that we would tear down walls, not to make people feel comfortable where they're at, but to show them who you are. We love you, Lord. And we give you this night in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.